Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now affiliated with the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In this week's episode, Institute Fellow Ben Ratliff talks with Kelly Fasane about his new book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Sane is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a contributor to CBS Sunday Morning. Previously, he was a music critic at The New York Times and the deputy editor of Transition, a journal of race and culture. Ben Ratliff was a music critic for The New York Times for 20 years and is the author of four books, including Every Song Ever, 20 Ways to Listen in an Age of Musical Plenty. He teaches young critics at New York University's Gallatin School for Individualized Study. Califasane, you have been my friend and colleague for something like 20, 20 25 years. I don't know. It might have been exactly 20 years ago that we went to see DJ Shadow at Irving Plaza. Oh, that was the first time. That's yeah. right. And that was just before you um, started working for The Times. That's right. And you and I were colleagues at The Times for six years. Six years. And so now you have your first full fledged book out on the market. It exists. Major Labels A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Before we start taking everything apart, <laughs> can you sort of construct the argument for us? that's in the book and also tell us about the the structure of the book well the argument is that genres exist and are kind of cool actually in attempting to tell the history of popular music over the last 50 years basically what happened since the Beatles my starting idea was that for a lot of people people who aren't music nerds especially popular music just seems very confusing very fragmented, very fractured. There's all sorts of stuff you've never heard of. And what you've never heard of seems obvious to someone else. And it's just a mess. I like the challenge of maybe trying to explain how music got so messy, how music got so kind of fragmented and fractured. And my idea, my argument is that the story of music in the last 50 years, basically since the 70s, since the Beatles broke up, if you like, is the story of these musical genres, communities really, existing, becoming self-conscious, fracturing, arguing, and that if you want to understand how popular music got to where it is, one good way to do it is to understand how these genres evolved over those years. So I, I took seven genres, seven quote-unquote major genres, rock and roll, R&B, country music, punk rock, hip-hop, dance music, and pop music, and in seven chapters try to explain how they evolved, how the genres themselves kind of frayed and fractured, but remained surprisingly meaningful often over those decades. So if the story is pop music's, I, I use the word pop in a kind of generic way. Yeah, there's, there's big pop and little pop. Yeah, so I, I just I just talk about pop, even if we're talking about, you know, punk rock. It's all popular music. Yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's not what we would call classical music. Right. And then there's the, the smaller core within that of pop as a genre, which in the book I write was kind of invented in the 80s. Yes, and it can be highly debated. The, the... It can all be highly debated. But right? So if, if, if the... Luckily for people like us. Yeah, it gives <laughs> us something to do. So uh, if the scope of your book is pop since the 70s, mm -hmm. and you're saying that genres have kind of helped things, have we reached an impasse? Are you writing this book now at a moment of fatal 
fracture. It's two things at once. On the one hand, I did want to celebrate the fact that these genres existed in the ways that they did over the last 50 years. So you're using the past tense. Right, because it's not obvious that that will happen forever, right? I went to high school in the 90s, and in the 90s, like, you could walk into a high school and look at what pants people were wearing and make some educated guesses about what music they were listening Absolutely. to, right? It was a very tribal time. Absolutely, yes. And so we're now living through, you know, what people might call the Spotify era, where people might argue that genres are kind of dissolving a little bit, right? It's, it's Lil Nas X and Post Malone and Lord and you know who knows or cares what genre anyone is one of the things I learned from writing this book and from spending a lot of time in the archives just reading what people were writing about music as it evolved is that this isn't the first time that's happened mm. that there have been lots of moments like this before right there's a moment in it's kind of before the scope of the book, but there's a moment in, I think, in 1963 where Billboard gets rid of its R&B chart mm -hmm. because the argument is, well, all these records are crossing over and going pop anyway, and the Temptations, the Beatles, whatever, it's kind of all one music now, mm -hmm. right? And then in the 70s, it kind of splits, and now, like, the Rolling Stones are on one planet, and, you know, Diana Ross is on a different planet. Mm -hmm. By the end of the 70s, it's back together again with disco, right? And everyone's on the disco dance floor, and it's, it's this... In some ways utopian moment right we're all going to be together and it's going to be straight and gay and it's going to be black and white and latin it's going to be the rolling stones and star wars and rod stewart and mm -hmm. donna summer and giorgio moroder and everyone's going to be together and of course that creates another backlash right that creates the disco sucks movement but it also creates house music and techno music hip-hop even is defining itself in opposition to disco to some extent, even as it's profoundly influenced by disco, that often happens. And so one of my suppositions, and I don't know if this is necessarily true, is that the current era will generate its own backlash of musicians saying, I don't want to be part of this like Spotify world where everything sort of sounds the same, of listeners saying, I don't want to listen to the same stuff that everyone else is listening to. So my sense in music and my my prejudice in general is to be skeptical of any claim that things are really different this time or this is the end of history i think music has so far been cyclical and i think as long as people are using music for self-definition as long as music is that important to people that they're defining themselves by it as opposed to just sort of enjoying it we're gonna see tribes they might be different tribes but we'll see tribes maybe new tribes okay so you're saying that um at a certain point in the not-too-distant future, musicians who have lived through this weird nebulous moment where music is defined by mood and other kind of weird ways of separating things will come to their senses and say, damn it, at my core, <laughs> I am an R&B person. And they will identify themselves that way. And they, they will realize what is at their essence. Well, and they will tag it with a genre name. I love you trying to trick me into claim, claiming that I believe in essences in that sense. Oh, okay. well, <laughs> well, are you? But, but you see, I mean, you see a little bit of that already, right? You see, like, Casey Musgraves nominated for a Grammy in the pop category. And she and her management say, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not pop. We're country. Right. And we want to be in the country world. So you, right. you see, and you saw that with Justin Bieber uh, a year ago, right. where he was similarly nominated in pop. And he said, wait a second, this is an R&B record that I made. I want to be in that category. I don't want to be in pop. So what is that when that happens? What does that mean? 
it's a reflection to me of the fact that musicians like listeners want these two kind of paradoxical, maybe incompatible things from music, right? Yeah. They want to reach everyone. We want to be listening to stuff that everyone else is listening to. We want to be all together. But they also want to be a little set apart. They want to be a little separate. They want to say, like, no, I'm not just making quote-unquote pop music. I'm doing something that feels a little more special, that right. feels a little more intimate, that feels more like part of a community. And so I don't think that one is the essence rather than the other. I think we want both things. And when we have too much of one, we kind of end up wanting the other. Well, forget about the word essence. Mm -hmm. Justin and Casey, mm -hmm. at this point, might as well be, you know, college professors. I mean, like, they, they know quite a lot about the history of popular music mm -hmm. because they've lived through a certain yeah. amount of it. They've probably listened to a lot of records. Mm -hmm. They're aware of how the institutions work. They know how the business works. They've met all the famous managers and all that. So forget about essence. They know about history. Younger people don't necessarily know about history. So what are they going to do? What genre are they going to claim? Well, I don't know, and I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to necessarily presuppose, right? The fun thing about music is that it tends not to evolve in the way that I would predict or that anyone would necessarily predict. But I think sometimes those social identities come first, right? Sometimes the thing that comes first is musicians and listeners saying, me and my friends are not like you and your friends in yeah. some way. We're different yeah. in some way. And then does that end up meaning like, oh, we use this tool or we use this guitar sound or, or here's how we deliver lyrics or here's what the lyrics are about? Mm -hmm. So maybe that follows. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not a given that the old tribes will necessarily endure and the only argument for why they would is that they've already lasted far longer than any reasonable person would have expected right this book is really written from the listener side yes even from the fan side yes actually not from the musician side yes that's definitely been my my guiding prejudice as a listener and a critic in the book i write a little bit about how it might be related to the fact that i moved to this country when i was five i was going to start talking about that because yeah i mean do you believe that you know criticism is autobiography there's no getting away from autobiography entirely to me part of the fun when we were colleagues part of the fun for me of being a new york times critic was trying to think through what it would mean to live up to the role of like newspaper critic like that's such a crazy job to have that you're going to take to the pages of the newspaper and tell the people which albums are good like that's a really strange job and so i like the challenge of not putting first person stuff in my writing and just saying like here is the view about what's good and what's bad i like that challenge but yes of course what we think about stuff is certainly shaped by our biography so my parents uh, were from africa and I moved to this country when I was five. I had previously been living in Scotland, so I had a Scottish accent. You were born in I was born, Birmingham. I was born in England, but, but never really lived there. My folks were living in Ghana, really, at the time. So I lived in Ghana for a few years and uh, Scotland for a few years. Mm. So I show up when I'm five with a Scottish accent, and like any kid, you know, you're trying to figure out, like, what is this place? And who can you trust? Yeah, and who can you and, trust, yeah. and who are your people? And But also... It was as much as anything, it was just like trying to figure it out, yeah. like analytically, that kind of curiosity, like what are they doing, what's happening? And so part of the excitement for me about music was that it helped satisfy that curiosity. You could eavesdrop on people. You could hear like, this is what's happening. Like when I got, when I got my mind blown by punk around the time of my 14th birthday, 
it wasn't so much like, oh, these are kids just like me and they're forming a band and I can do it too. It was like, who are these freaks? Like, what's happening? Are they scary? What are they like? And that sense of music giving you some of the familiar and some of the exotic at the same time. So you liked that it was a more complicated set of signs to read? Yes, certainly. I also liked that it, to me, punk taught me that it was possible and maybe inevitable to hate music as well as loving it. That those things might be linked was really exciting to me. Like, oh, you can reject everything that your classmates like? I don't know if that had really occurred to me, being like, no, I'm not listening to Bob Marley. That's a kind of social capital too, right? Absolutely. To, to be able to say, that's for you. That's not for me. Absolutely. You have fun with that. I have problems with that. Not everyone does it to that extreme, and, and certainly I, I maybe don't do that to that extreme now, but I think that I'm not sure it's possible entirely to enjoy music without doing some of that, because I'm not sure it's possible to enjoy music without not enjoying some other music, and I'm not sure it's possible to have opinions about music that aren't also in some way opinions about the people who listen to it. Though, as you've said recently, you worry that you're starting to like everything. Yes, that's the thing. Like, is it? And then every once in a while, I'll hear something, I'll be like, oh, absolutely not. Oh, good. This, I see you still got it. Yeah, uh -huh. a little bit. But uh -huh. yes, yes, that is the thing. Does that happen over time? And again, it's a balance. I don't think anyone's entirely one thing or the other. Yeah. For me, there was a time when I was pretty far along. I'm like, I'm not listening to any major label music, partly why that's the, the name of the book. And I'm only listening to this punk stuff. I'm only listening to bands that espouse a worldview that is similar to mine, put out on record labels run by people with a worldview similar to mine. Mm -hmm. And people like-minded people go to concerts, right? And there's a kind of intensity and a kind of power you get from that kind of insularity. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say that even for people like me now, who certainly, who listen to all sorts of stuff, part of the fun of listening to all sorts of stuff is that you can sort of hopscotch between those different worlds, and those different musical worlds that you can enter wouldn't exist if there weren't some people who were kind of stubborn enough to say, no, we're only doing this. And so I like to think, or I like to hope that the book is in part an open-minded defense of closed-mindedness. Wow. That's the most counterintuitive thing I've heard today. So, but Glad to hear it. This is, this is your specialty, I would say. Uh -oh. I mean, ha having known... <laughs> well, this is one of your specialties, having, having known you for a while and sure. worked alongside you. You have a, a gift or even an intuition for being able to turn something over and think about it upside down and present it to the reader in a way that they probably haven't thought about it before to the point of them being startled or even maybe even slightly offended, you know? <laughs> One thing I like about this, it feels very, very true to you okay. that you did it this way. Because um, I was thinking, you know, there are these conventions in book publishing and they change about every decade. Maybe 20 years ago, there was the biography of a household object as a way of explaining yes. the world, yes. you know, like a book about the pencil or right. a book about salt or whatever. And then after that, there was a kind of group biography of kind of granular elements in order to explain a big thing like 10 soccer matches that explain the world or right. 10 uh, songs that explain pop but you <laughs> did something so out it's in which is to go back to genres which is what some older books i think maybe did i guess this is a roundabout way of asking you were you conscious of 
of books like this. Do you know this book? Wap Babaloo Bop, Wap Bamboo. Nick Cohn. Yeah. Classic. Maybe the first book to do something similar yeah. to what you did. Absolutely. You know, explaining popular music from that standpoint, which was 1969. Cohn wrote this book taking the position that essentially the great part about rock was over. Right. Or what he called pop sure. was over because it, it had become bloated and arty. And, and it, the it, minute it, the Beatles started to take themselves too seriously, he just thought, oh, no, it's all it's all gone. He was right in a sense. OK, he was right that that was the moment at which the idea that the great part of rock and roll is over hardened into conventional wisdom. Right. Did you think a lot about about books that came before yours that attempted to do something similar? Yeah, I did. Explaining this big subject? I did, and I also thought about, like, the genre books, right? Like Nelson George, The Death of Rhythm and Blues, yeah. which I love. He's such a provocative book and so granular because he was, like, on the ground as a billboard editor, and, you know, he the way he thinks about R&B is so different from the sort of received wisdom. Yeah, yeah, the story he tells is a lot yeah. more complicated. But the truth also is that a lot of books about music are books about musicians, often one musician or a few musicians, and tend to sometimes adopt the musician's view, which is that there is this series of rules and boundaries and traditions, and the musician is a genius and is therefore going to violate these various taboos and going to transcend these generic barriers and going to make something transcendent right is going to elevate above the sort of petty rules that musicians are supposed to follow right mm -hmm. like that's like that's the most basic narrative of a great musician mm -hmm. and so yeah there was a part of me that wanted to look at the flip side of this and say like wait a second yes it's true that one way to make great music is to say i'm not going to follow the rules of the genre that the industry tells me or whatever i'm going to go off and do my own thing yeah you can do that but another way to make great music is to be part of a community and to make music that thrills members of that community. When I came to work at the New York Times, one thing that I really learned during those years that was such a pleasant surprise was how relatively little power record companies had, how hard they tried every month to create like a new bunch of stars and how often the listening public was like, eh, no thanks. And how often the thing that became hugely popular was often something they didn't really expect to become huge, hugely popular. Mm -hmm. Sometimes something they didn't like. I mean, at the time it was the 2000s and I was writing a lot about hip hop, especially Southern hip hop. Certainly on the PR side, you would talk to the people at the labels and they'd be like, you want, you want tickets to that? You want you want a CD of that? Like, they didn't even like this stuff, but it was selling, and so they had to somehow jump on board. And so I think that model is sometimes underrated, the extent to which, you know, the labels are scrambling to keep up with something that the kids have decided they like, which to me is, is good news. And so in terms of that history of how these communities evolve, often, yes, it's the labels trying to, like, manipulate everything, but some of those manipulations are successful, and some of them aren't. And the question is, well, why does this genre thing, which is, you know, convenient for radio stations that want to encourage loyalty among listeners, and maybe it's helpful for record stores. There's all these people that have a vested interest in making the genre thing work, but somehow it really does work, and it really does kind of take on a life of its own, and I would argue one reason that is, is because a genre, especially in music, functions as a community. 
and people have a tendency to form into communities, even as people also have a tendency to get annoyed and itchy and restless when they feel as if they're too much part of a community. Punk is the central example of this for me, is that when you have a movement, a genre that claims to be like breaking down walls and rules and there's no rules, just do whatever, that's often a good sign that there are some new rules being written and some new walls being erected. Mm -hmm. And that's something I learned with punk and through punk helped to see that in other genres. You know, there's a moment I write about in the book when I got to Harvard in the fall of 93, I was like, I want to be a DJ at the radio station. But to do that, you literally had to take a written exam in punk rock. And if you passed the exam, you had to take a semester-long class in punk rock taught by fellow DJs with weekly lectures and listening assignments. And it blew everyone's mind. Right? How long were the lectures? Maybe an hour or something. And how many people were in were in attendance? It was the, the group of people that were trying to become DJs. So right. 10 or 15. So it would be a series of lectures yeah. about, would they be about regional punk scenes? No, it would be like about tendencies, right? There'd be one about like 60s and the roots of punk, huh. like 60s nuggets and right. sonics and seeds and all that kind of stuff. There's one about art rock, which was more like rough trade, British, indie. There'd be one about um, early hardcore. There'd be one about, I think there's a noise rock lecture. There was an, an indie pop and that kind of like songwriter oriented movement. So these were established modules that people figured out how to teach. Yeah, I mean, the older DJs, obviously at some point I started giving those lectures and the older DJs would get together and yeah, figure out like, what are the things, what are the tendencies that we feel like are important in this tradition? And what are the right. records that form a little miniature canon in this tradition? And would you play punk or not punk with them? No, it wasn't so much about leaning into is this punk or is this not punk. It's just like here's a here's a tendency. And there's some people there that were only into like fey, twee, indie pop. And that would count as Yeah, punk. sure. That was that, part that of the thing. Fun. And yeah, and there's some people that were into like the more like populist punk and hardcore yeah. straight edge bands and stuff. And there's some people that are into like super artsy experimental noise stuff. And there were there were a couple of rules like you were expected to not play contemporary major label releases. But there's an understanding that if things were kind of old, like, you know, the Sex Pistols were on a major label. Of course, yeah. So, like, if things were old, you could sort of play it. Like, obviously, all this stuff sort of broke down under scrutiny, but it was also, it also recognized that, yeah, there is this actual tradition. And also, it in a weird way, it taught humility. Because it said, like, oh, you think you're into everything. You think you just are so open-minded and you listen to whatever. But no, this thing that you like that you think represents rulelessness, it was codified. And it has a particular tradition. And, like, the Ramones are not the sound of musical chaos. They're, like, in fact, like a slightly reactionary effort to bring back a lost spirit of rock and roll, right? And hearkening back to, like, Lenny Kay's Nuggets compilation, which itself is hearkening back to, like, what was happening in the late 60s. And, like, mm. no, there is this specific tradition. And, of course, if you're someone who loves music and is super curious, at some point you'll get interested in other traditions. But, yes, the idea that there is a tradition... And that there is a complicated relationship between, like, orthodoxy and rebellion in music in general. That in order to be rebellious in some recognizable sense, if you're making music, it helps to be part of a community so you can rebel against something in particular, right? If, you know, if you want to really go at Nashville and the Nashville industry, it helps to be a country singer. Yeah. Well, so just to go back to the punk department for <laughs> a second at your, at your college radio station, the range of things that you just described 
is pretty broad. Yeah. From the Ramones to twee guitar band music to mm. um, Japanese noise Japanese records. Japanese noise to 4AD, whatever. One might easily say that some of those things are not punk. Sure. If we're talking about some sort of strict genre definition. But you are talking about a disposition. You use the word tradition several mm. times. Is there a difference between genre and tradition? Hmm. I mean, I think that there could be. There's certainly, there are wider and narrower ways to define all this stuff. In my rock and roll chapter, like, it's Paul Simon, it's Slayer. It's a big tent version of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. You could imagine a narrower version of rock and roll that's like more like Tom Petty. Early Tom Petty, I guess. Yeah, there, there... What was early Tom Petty? Wasn't, it was like bordering on New Wave. I mentioned in the book, there's a moment where an interviewer asks him about that, and he's like, no, not into New Wave. This is strictly rock and roll. It was reactionary in that sense, right? It was like, oh, this new stuff is coming in with rock and roll, and we're going to reject it. We're going to be not metal and not New Wave and not bluesy, mm. and we're going to be... We're going to purify it, right? And, and often... That's one way in which these communities, that keeps these communities existing, right? Is these moments of purification alternate with moments of expansion and experimentation. Again, you, you know, you need a bit of both. And often the cultural or the extra musical, there's often a dynamic between cultural or extra musical definitions of a genre or a community and the musical definitions. In other words, once you set some of those rules, like in the radio station, right, saying we're not going to play major label stuff, there's an ethos here, etc., maybe that ethos gives you a little more freedom because, like, we're not going to play the new Green Day record because that doesn't fit, but we are going to play, you know, Merzbau, right, yeah. a Japanese noise producer. And similarly, I argue that you see that a bunch of places, right? You see that in country music, where Blake Shelton is doing Boys Round Here, and the lyrics are all about how he's the countryest country singer to ever country, mm -hmm. and he's rapping. Yeah. And the reason he's able to rap and still be country is that his cultural identity is so strong. And you see that in the reverse in country, right? Or you see someone who's, whose lifestyle, whose cultural signifiers are maybe not that country. Maybe they're, you know, a hipster living in Brooklyn. But because their records have mandolin and fiddle and pedal steel, their records are very musically, traditionally country, even if the cultural identity isn't. Which makes sense, right? I compare it sometimes to religion and to the way in the second half of the 20th century, you got these sort of like mainline high church traditions that were doing the old school liturgy with a kind of liberal theology. Mm -hmm. And then you got these evangelical churches that were doing kind of up-to-date music with a more conservative or traditional theology. Mm -hmm. And often you do see that seesaw, which makes sense because if your cultural identity is not that strongly country and your musical identity is not very strongly country, you're probably just not a country singer, mm. right? You might mm. just be a singer-songwriter mm. or whatever. And maybe maybe that's what happened to someone like Casey Musgraves. So when you left us at the Times <laughs> and you went to The New Yorker, you immediately started to write not just about music, but about a whole, a whole lot of different subjects. Yes. And so you've returned to music for this book. Do you feel in any way that you're kind of like, getting it out of your system, like getting the remains of it <laughs> no, man, out of your system. It, it'll, it'll never be out. That's what I discovered. So at the times, that was like, I mean, what a great job. The thing I remember still is the visual of the mail crate full of CDs that would arrive at my office every day. Mm. And also at the old, in those days, some of the online listings weren't great yet. So like looking at the Paper Village Voice and just trying to figure out what shows were happening that week, how many of them I could go to. After doing that for six years, for me, it was a nice change of pace to be like, oh, I can like 
go profile a politician. I can read some books about history. I can write a story about coffee or comedy or, or boxing. And I still love all of that stuff, but I never stopped listening to music. Like I never stopped being obsessed with music and being an obsessive listener. As I got older, I realized that that was more and more unusual. More and more of my peers would maybe not be eagerly awaiting Fridays to see like mm -hmm. what the new release section would look like on Spotify or whatever. So yes, I'm as obsessed with and interested in music as I ever was. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to also get to do some other non-musical stuff. What do you love about writing about music? I love going deep into a rabbit hole, whether that's the rabbit hole of just like a single band's work or just some singer who just has a weird way of seeing the world or if it's a whole subculture. I love going deep into that and then sort of reporting back. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a bit of madness for a little while, right? Yes. Like descending into obsession yes. and then coming out of it. And also most of the writing that I've done in my life, with a few exceptions, hasn't been at specialist titles. So mostly I've been writing for the so-called general reader, for right. the general audience, which is to say an audience, especially the stuff that I write about, an audience full of people whom probably do not, you presume, care at all about the thing you're writing about and probably will never listen to it, even if you tell them it's good. That's not what they're there for. Mm -hmm. So the idea of you're writing about this world and you're trying to make it interesting to someone with no pre-existing interest in it and someone who's not likely to ever go check it out. So it's not a consumer guide. It's not like, hey, go buy this record. It's like, this interesting thing is happening over here, and is you're going to be happy to know about it. Is it like translation? It's a little bit of that, reporting back. To me, that's always the dream. Is like, can you write about Cannibal Corpse in the way that will make someone who doesn't even want to hear the words Cannibal Corpse feel like they've spent a happy two paragraphs learning about it. Yeah. To me, that's the fun and that's the challenge. And because I love music so much, it's always felt like a privilege, like, whoa, I get to tell people about this thing. They're going to be so whatever, right? They're going to be so happy or amused or disturbed or something to just know it exists. Yeah, there's that sense of that great desire to pass something on mm -hmm. too. I'm sure I'm sure you feel that. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like when when you really get your hands around something and feel like you understand it, you understand the, yeah. the boundaries of it, then you're ready to say to somebody, drop everything. This is for you. Right. But often for me that's about drop everything you should know how this thing works. Uh -huh. Not drop everything, here's a recommendation. In fact, when people ask me for musical recommendations, I never give them recommendations right off the bat. I tell them, like, well, what do you listen to? Yeah. What do you like? There's tons of stuff I like, but, you know, you might not particularly like it. One of the things that I'm interested in or aware of is that music isn't necessarily transcendent. Music doesn't necessarily transcend cultural barriers. Music gets some of its meaning from the fact that cultural barriers exist. That doesn't mean that people from outside of that world where it was made can't appreciate it, but it means that not everyone will appreciate everything all the time. And so that's something I try to be aware of when I write, right? Part of what I'm interested in is, well, who is this resonating with and why? And what's the world of people that, that love this stuff? But I also try to be aware of that if I'm just giving someone listening suggestions. Mm -hmm. Like, this might not be for you, or this might be for you. Or mm -hmm. if you like this, you might not think you would like that, but actually there's like a common thread, right? That's something I love about your writing, is your ability to uncover hidden connective threads between things that seem like they wouldn't belong to the same world. This is what I think of as like 
the Ratliffian approach to writing about music in general is that if you actually listen really carefully, you can find all sorts of connections that aren't the advertised connections and aren't the connections the musicians themselves might not even know. Right. Yeah, 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 that's the thing. I mean, I love that you have written a book from the audience point of view or the mm -hmm. fan point of view. I had a memory of you and I at a concert. I think it was 2005. And it was a My Morning Jacket concert. Mm -hmm. And you'd written about them a number of times. And remember, in those days, we would review the same bands over and over again because it it was considered to be interesting and of importance that, oh, here they are coming around again a year and a half later with a new record and maybe a new sound and it's time to check in. Yeah, if it was temperature. Yeah, basically like, I mean, this is before I got there. I mean, I remember getting there in 2002 and there wasn't a regular album review column because the idea was we were reviewing concerts. Concerts, yeah. Because the pop model was based on the jazz model, which was based on the classical model, which was like, who's at the symphony hall tonight? So often, sometimes we would do concert reviews that sort of functioned as album reviews. Like, they're coming around, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. touring on this album. Here's some thoughts about the album, here's some thoughts about the concert. The concert was a pretext for an essay right. about where they're at right now. Yeah, and um, uh, so you'd written about it a bunch of times. They were still kind of like, I was still figuring out how I felt about them. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember that night, uh, I was taking notes in my notepad, and somebody leaned over and said, like, can I see those? And I said, sorry, I don't show anybody my notes. Right. And then the next day, this joker blogged about it. But, but that same night, I was saying to you, you really have a kind of cumulative big idea going on in your writing. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And your response was, eh, I'm not that into books. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, yeah, you know, books, they were okay for a while, but eh, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in the other, you know, the online stuff. And it was a very K kind of answer. So what That's happened hilarious. to that young rebel, K? If you were to measure the reading that I do... That's probably still true, right? Like most of the reading that I do is probably online. Maybe like a lot of people, I would like to be able to tell you like, well, usually what happens is after the kids are in bed, I pull some books down from my bookshelf and I read. No? No. I mean, I, I read when I'm you know doing work and I obviously the way that a book gives you a chance to make a sustained argument, to have a, have a worldview, to explain something, to get deep into something. That's amazing. And yes, I read books. I, I, I knew that you did then too. But I also read, you know, blog posts and online essays yeah. and social media rants and all sorts of stuff. So right. yeah. Is a book like an album? There's certainly some similarities, yeah. Yes, it's 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 still uh, funny and not unpleasant to be interviewed, for example, which uh, was not something that tended to happen to me when I hadn't written a book. Um, so yes, and yes. Oh, I see. So it's a moment. For, yeah, it's a yeah, moment it's, of it's like a, you're yeah. like I did a thing, mm -hmm. right? Which is mm -hmm. which is part of why musicians make albums, especially now. It's not that people are going to quote unquote buy them, right? Yeah. Especially with the album equivalent streams and all this other stuff that's happening online. But yeah, it's a moment to be like, look, I did a thing. But yes, there is a, there is a sense that it, it kind of gives you, and but there is a similarity in that the thing persists even if the need for it doesn't in the same way, right? With mm -hmm. albums that like, you don't really need to release music that way. But I remember, you know, when we were working together back then, 
everyone's kind of like, eh, it seems like this album thing is kind of going away. Oh, yeah. We were talking about that all the time. And wasn't that also the moment of the, the Lil Wayne mixtape? The mixtapes. Uh, you know, I mean, yes. it, was, it just seemed so clear that, yeah. you know, this is just as good as the album model. Certainly the Lil Wayne dedication tapes uh, were a great example of that. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a similarity, too, to genres where, like, even when the technological need for it has passed, there is something about that grouping, right? Whether it's a, maybe, whether it's a grouping of songs or a grouping of people, like, these groupings tend to sometimes last longer than we think they're going to last. And within the grouping, often there's a arc. <laughs> there's right. that, like, old-fashioned corny thing about, like, starting from home base and then going somewhere. Right. And then returning back home. Yes. For, and in fact, for a resolution. But yes, there is something about that, about having like that longer journey and hopefully without without making myself sound like a progressive rock band, like certainly in writing a book, I like the idea that I could maybe make a point and, you know, refer back to it a hundred pages later. Even in writing about which I did on purpose, writing the R&B chapter and then the country chapter. Hopefully getting people to think about and enjoy and celebrate R&B as black music, right? Yeah. And then to maybe, in the next chapter, think, well, like, is it possible to think about and celebrate country music as white music? In fact, can you have one without the other? Mm -hmm. Can you have black genres without also having white genres? Right. Like, mathematically, maybe not. So, since you brought up Spotify, I want to ask you, what do you think about the mood thing? I mean, there's uh, genres, mm -hmm. which you write about, in your book. And I think at some point along the way, you mentioned that Spotify is experimenting heavily with the idea of moods as kind of like the next version of genre. Yeah. I did a piece once about Kygo, the Scandinavian oh, yeah. producer, sometimes what they call tropical, tropical house. house. Yeah. But like part of his rise to huge success was that he was getting put on chill playlists like music to chill, music yeah. to study, music to whatever. And so part of what was interesting about him was like, you're like, oh, is this how chill becomes a genre, right? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it like how in, in Chicago record stores, they used to have a section for records that were played at the warehouse club? It was warehouse mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. and then it became house music, and then it was a genre, mm -hmm. right? So yes, one can turn into another if, if it's effective enough, right? If, but, but I think part of what you're, what you're identifying is are people learning to listen to different genres at different times of the day or different different moods at different times of the day right mm. so it's not like oh i'm a chill person mm. it's like well i like to listen to chill in the morning and then i listen to this thing in the afternoon and then at night i listen to this thing and that's an interesting question is how many communities do people want to be part of is and it even can, a community right. i mean is can it, is it a community it, right exactly is it is it promoting human connection at all is, it, it's not like uh Oh, the way the way you dress and the way you walk, I can kind of tell that you're into chill music. Well, people have also talked about the online era promoting like hyper specific communities based not on a genre, but based on an act. Right. Mm. If you're like a BTS fan, that can be your whole identity in a way that it couldn't really in the fan club era where you can spend your whole day just like going to war on behalf of BTS online. Right. And so maybe we're seeing both, right? Maybe we're seeing these like hazy mega genres that don't have much like identity power. And then we're seeing these like intense micro genres that have extreme identity power and you're getting the tattoos and you're sure. buying the complete collection when they're doing the, the, the brand collaborations. Sure. And so it's possible that you're seeing a bit of both at once, possibly 
possible that music ceases to have that kind of definitive power, right? That music could become something a little bit more like theater. Kids don't necessarily have a favorite playwright, uh, or if uh -huh. they do, you can't necessarily tell from their shoes. But as long as it has that kind of power, I don't think it'll be enough to just say like, yeah, I put on chill in the morning, I put on something else at night. As long as you're using it, as long as you're focusing on it that intensely, you're gonna see tribes. That's and, amazing. And, and we've seen that technology can do both, right? One of the ironies is that like, in the earlier days of the internet, the idea was that the internet was extremely tribal, right? Mm -hmm. The idea was like some weird person had some weird website about a thing, and you could look at the hit counter at the bottom of their website and see how many people who had the same hobby were also there, right? Mm -hmm. it, was gonna, it was gonna fracture us. That was the splitting era, and now we're kind of in a lumping era where like people's usage of the internet is based on a relatively small number of sites, right? If there's like 10 sites that probably account for the vast majority of the traffic, right? And everyone's in the same place and Spotify is the record store that has everything. It doesn't seem obvious to me that the pendulum won't swing back. Mm. Okay, it's really been nice to catch up. This and, was fun. And just like uh, to hear your voice again, you know. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.